Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Please don't fly off the handle, sir. I am about to make you an historic figure. Maybe even get you a cabinet post. A cabinet post? Yes. Did you say that? I said that. Wonderful. The presidency of Donald Trump stands out in many ways. But as the Washington Post noted in April, one way in which Trump stands out is in his willingness to rely heavily on acting agency heads, including acting cabinet members, and for long periods of time. For example, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, has not had a Senate-confirmed director since January 20, 2017. As my guest today notes, this heavy dependence on acting heads and delay in nominating permanent replacements can have adverse consequences. But there are ways to reform the system to prevent the abuse of the president's power to appoint acting heads. I had a chance to discuss these issues with Stephen Vladek, the A. Dalton Cross Professor in Law at the University of Texas School of Law. His expertise is in federal jurisdiction, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. His writing has appeared in such publications as the Harvard Law Review, the New York Times, and Slate. He's argued before the U.S. Supreme Court and is CNN's Supreme Court analyst. We got into the weeds on this one, but these issues are important, so come into the weeds with us. I'm now delighted to share our conversation in this episode, which is titled Interim Ad Infinitum. Why does it matter in your view that so many senior officials in the Trump administration are acting and have been in acting positions for so long? Well, I think it matters for two different but largely related reasons. I mean, I think, first of all, um, officials who are acting officers, although they tend to have the same authorities over their subordinates, they actually tend to have less authority um, in interagency processes. And so someone who's an acting secretary, for example, uh, is outranked by a secretary who's been confirmed by the Senate. Um, and so, among other things, it actually, I think, skews often rather significantly um, the ability of particular agencies or even cabinet departments um, to actually, you know, assert themselves and have their say and be part of governmental processes to the same degree as others. And I know that's technical, but more fundamentally, what the president's able to accomplish by having all these acting officers is he's able to avoid um, the the gauntlet of Senate confirmation. Now, we might laugh at that idea, I mean, especially with this Senate. Yeah. You know, the Republican majority has shown very little um, hostility to almost any of the nominees President Trump has sent forward. But, you know, with with acting officers, the president doesn't even, doesn't even have to go through the specter of a Senate confirmation. Um, he can avoid, for example, having senators you know, get commitments from these officers on the record about what they will or won't do. 
Um, you can make it harder for the Senate and for the House as well to conduct oversight because, you know, there won't have been these promises at confirmation hearings to go back and revisit. Um, and so as the president himself said, you know, having acting officers gives him more, um, in his words, flexibility. I think the, the better word here is um, less accountability because there's just no role for the Senate in supervising either on the front end or on the back end what an acting cabinet secretary or agency head is doing that compares to the Senate's role in confirming or rejecting a, you know, a, a full-time nominee. So as a follow-up question to that, when the Senate exercises its uh, role in confirmation, it's exercising what, um, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, is uh, its advice and consent role accorded to it in the Constitution. Why is it important? And we're just getting back to basics of constitutional law and the framers' intent, I suppose. But why is it important that the Senate exercise that advice and consent role? Well, I think it's important in two respects. I mean, so the first uh, and the first respect is sort of a structural one, which is, um, you know, the reason why the Constitution gives the Senate that role is that the president can't just pick whoever he wants to run these agencies so that at least some other group of um, individuals who have been elected by people from across the country have a say in deciding who is going to run cabinet departments, who's going to run major government agencies. Um, there's a reason why the founders gave that power to the Senate as opposed to the House, because they thought that you know the Senate would be more geographically diverse, yeah. and so it would assume that there would be you know greater approval across the range of states as opposed to just within one special demographic. Um, and so the the structural reason for Senate confirmation is so that there's actually accountability with regard to who the president's picking. Um, the Constitution, as you know, doesn't impose qualifications for any of these offices. There's no requirement that the attorney general be an attorney. There's no requirement that the secretary of health and human services be a doctor. There's no requirement that these folks, you know, even be adults. Um, instead, the requirement is that they are, you know, competent and qualified enough to make it through confirmation by whoever's currently a majority of the Senate. Um, and historically, that's been a critical check on the president's ability to use these positions um, in ways that would be politically unpalatable. And I think the second part of it, and we've seen a lot of this with the Trump administration, is that the Trump administration, you know, the Senate's role in confirming nominees oftentimes is a way of vetting these nominees to make sure that they actually are suitable to hold these high offices. I mean, we've seen, you know, a number of candidates for high government positions whose nominations have had to have been, have had to be withdrawn um, once it came out that there were various things about their past that just made them unconfirmable. We saw this just last week yep. with the president's um, you know, putative nominee to become the new director of national intelligence, Congressman Ratcliffe. And so the confirmation process not only gives the people a voice in deciding who's going to run all these government agencies, but it also gives everybody an opportunity to actually decide for themselves whether these folks really are qualified for the positions they're going to hold. And we've seen with the Trump administration both nominees who have failed because the vetting has revealed huge problems, um, and context in which the president has named people to high offices on an acting basis who have no chance of receiving Senate confirmation, where what's going on is clearly an attempt to avoid exactly that accountability and oversight. One of the agencies, or actually one of the departments, where there's been quite a bit of turnover and 
and in my view, it's just a striking number of uh, acting agency heads is uh, Homeland Security. So I was just, um, this was a really exciting way to spend my morning. I was basically going through organizational charts and I saw that unless I'm mistaken, there are uh, seven agencies that fall under Homeland Security, three of whom don't have acting heads. So the Coast Guard, Secret Service, and the TSA, but the other four, so a majority of the seven, so immigration and customs uh, enforcement, the, uh, in many quarters, infamous ICE, uh, customs and border protection, uh, FEMA, so Federal Emergency Management Agency, and then the USCIS, I believe U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Service. Am I recalling that correctly? Yep, that's right. So four of those seven within Homeland Security uh, have acting heads. And it took me back to an article, seeing that took me back to an article that I saw in the New York Times by Jason... Do you know if it's Zingerl or Zingerly? I think it's Zingerly. Okay, so Zingerly. And it's a what my students would call TLDR, too long, didn't read. It's a very <laughs> lengthy uh, article. But one of the things that took me aback was at the end, he suggested that in his terms, quote, the game of musical chairs at DHS has given Miller, uh, that's Stephen Miller, who's advocated for very restrictive uh, immigration policies, to say the least, so that game of musical chairs has given Miller what only two years ago seemed impossible. And that's a department staffed with Stephen Miller's. The, the question that I have is, given that acting agency heads may have less status in the eyes of uh, others, or at least that's an assumption of mine, it, it, it would seem to me that even if there weren't like-minded agency heads in DHS, they Miller's hand might be even stronger with acting heads rather than rather than uh, agency heads confirmed for those positions. Does 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 that seem reasonable to you? Absolutely. I mean, I think this goes back to the the technical but really important point about the role of acting officers in interagency processes. Um, when there's no Senate confirmed Secretary of Homeland Security, when there's no Senate confirmed Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, when there's no Senate confirmed Under Secretary for Management in the Department of Homeland Security, and when all of those agency heads are being filled by officers who haven't had to go through Senate confirmation, there's absolutely no question. Well, just, 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 those, just, just to clarify, some of them have been Senate confirmed, haven't they? But just not for the roles they're serving. That's right. But so, I mean, but so we have, I mean, we, but, you know, if you look at someone like the acting secretary, that Kevin McElhinney, yep. um, he was, right, he, so he was confirmed to be the head of CBP. Yep. Um, he wasn't confirmed to be the secretary of the whole department with responsibility for the Secret Service and the Coast Guard. Um, and so I think, you know, the point there is not just the lack of accountability, but also it makes it so much easier for the White House or any other agency that has a Senate-confirmed official to run roughshod over these officers, um, both formally because they're outranked and practically because all of these acting officers are depending entirely upon the good graces of the White House and of the president, um, a president who has shown no compunction, right, no sort of reservation about interfering with bureaucratic structures so that if they step even a half an inch out of line, presumably they won't be the active officer anymore. So there's, there's no question that this has the effect, and I think to a large degree the intent, of centralizing administrative authorities in the White House, um, and in this case, the centralizing administrative authority in the hands of someone who no one elected to wit, Stephen Miller. So shifting to a related topic, uh, I want to talk about the FVRA because as I understand it, it imposes some 
very modest, I would say, uh, limitations on whom a president can name to fill uh, um, a vacancy uh, in a senior position in the executive branch. So what are the options? As I, as I understand it, there are three options available to the presidency uh, under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, um, um, unless another specific statute makes the FVRA um, inapplicable. What are the three options that a president would have available available to them? Well, first we should say, I mean, the you know, the unless there is actually a pretty big caveat. I mean, there's a big fight in almost all of these vacancy contexts about whether the more specific statutes that govern succession at the Department of Homeland Security or succession at the Justice Department or succession in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence um, really do, you know, sort of give way to the FBRA. So, you know, the starting point here is the Federal Vacancies Reform Act only comes into play in situations in which there isn't a statute that expressly provides a different process. Um, and that, you know, clearly displaces the FDRA. We know of at least one example of that, the Homeland Security statute, which is part of why um, Kirsten Nielsen actually had to unresign yep. for long enough for them to fire the undersecretary for management so that they could put McAleenan in as acting secretary. Okay, but once we get to a context where the FDRA applies, that is to say, where either no one is in the position that should automatically become the acting officer or where the president is given a choice, the FDRA um, identifies three categories of potential acting office holders. Um, the first is the so-called first assistant. So this is supposed to be the deputy. So in a cabinet agency like Homeland Security, um, the deputy secretary by statute is the first assistant. So if there's a Senate-confirmed deputy secretary when the vacancy occurs, he or she becomes the acting secretary um, under that approach. Um, but the FDRA says you don't have to pick the first assistant, Mr. President. You can actually pick the first assistant, or someone from two other buckets. The second bucket is anyone who has been confirmed by the Senate to any position in the executive branch and is still there. So this is why Mick Mulvaney, for example, was able to serve as acting um, CFPB head because he had been confirmed to be director of OMB. Um, this is why um, you know we hear sort of the concerns sometimes about bringing people over from other departments. Right. So someone who's confirmed by the Senate to be the assistant secretary of, I don't know, housing and urban development um, is actually eligible under the FDRA to be the acting secretary of defense. Um, and I think, you know, we can we can wonder if that really is the smartest approach for Congress to be taking. And then finally, the third bucket um, is folks who have not been Senate confirmed, but who have held senior positions. Um, it's defined by pay scale. So GS 15 or higher within the relevant department or agency for at least 90 of the 365 days preceding the vacancy. So this, for example, is what the president relied upon to name Matthew Whitaker as the acting attorney general after Jeff Sessions resigned. Um, Whitaker had never been confirmed by the Senate um, to a DOJ position. He had been confirmed years earlier to be the U.S. attorney in part of Iowa. Whitaker had simply been Sessions' chief of staff. But that was a sufficiently senior position, and he had held it for long enough that the president was able to use that bucket um, in that context. So the FDRA, when it applies, gives the president a ton of flexibility um, and a huge list of names from which to choose and fill in just about any vacancy in the executive branch. And if you mentioned this, I missed it. Um, is the duration in which an acting head can serve under the FVRA 210 days? So, yes, I mean, the, so the, a separate provision of the Federal Vacancy Reform Act says that 
Um, basically, the, the person can only serve as the acting officer for 210 days, but that 210 days is sought because that period can be extended simply by the president nominating someone um, to hold that position on a permanent basis. So if the president just goes through the motions on day 209 of sending a name to the Senate, um, the acting officer can continue to serve as the acting officer until the Senate acts on the nomination. And, you know, sometimes the Senate sits on these nominations for months. So it's 210 days, but with a pretty big hole and asterisk attached. Could one acting head be replaced by a second acting? I think I've seen cases where this happens. Does that 210-day clock reset when that happens? So, it's, I mean, in theory, it's not supposed to, right? That the, the issue is supposed to be 210 days from when the vacancy occurs, not who's holding it. But, you know, then you have a situation where someone can't call themselves the acting secretary, but you still have to have someone who's there. I mean, right, so you still have to have someone who is basically exercising the functions of, say, the Secretary of Homeland Security, even if they're not allowed to call themselves acting secretary. So, you know, there's a context where the time limit ends up being more a formal distinction than a functional one, um, you know, yet for the reason why Congress ought to be revisiting this statute. Um, you know, even if, the, even if the changes are only going to apply to the next president, there ought to be some kind of bipartisan consensus that this is not the model of legislative drafting. So I just want to compare my understanding of the facts in one particular vacancy to yours. I was looking uh, at the timeline for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which has been in the news a lot lately. And according to what I see, Sarah Saldana uh, was the Senate-confirmed director of ICE until January 20th, 2017, so when Trump took office. And she was replaced by uh, the deputy, Daniel Ragsdale. But since then, Ragsdale was replaced by Ronald Vitiello, uh, another acting who was replaced by Matthew Albans, another acting, who was replaced by Mark Morgan, another acting director, who was then replaced again by Matthew Albans returning uh, to the position. So there has not been a Senate-confirmed ICE director since January 20, 2017. Am I wrong about any of that? Uh, that sounds right to me. <laughs> uh, I should say, and all against a backdrop where it's not exactly like the Senate is hostile to you know, this president. I mean, so, right, this, this, what, what you just recounted might make sense in a world in which, say, you had a president of one party and a Senate controlled by the other where there was just, you know, no um, consensus, no opportunity for compromise um, as to nominee. But that's not what's going on here. That's right. Yeah, it's his own party in the Senate. It, it's, yep. and, and, and that's, as an aside, that's more than 210 days unless my math is way off. But, no, and so, and so we're into a scenario now where, you know, you have individuals who are basically the de facto acting heads of these agencies, even if they're not, you know, formally allowed to say, I am the acting director. Um, because, I mean, and, and to, to a degree, that at least makes sense. I mean, it, it shouldn't be the case that you can have an agency that literally has no one who's, you know, signing the checks um, and turning the lights on and off just because the time period has expired. But there are ways, I think, that Congress could fix this regime so that you had fewer opportunities for scenarios like what we've seen with CBP. So we've had fewer opportunities for what we've seen with some of these other cabinet vacancies. Um, and I think it's just, you know, the, the question is whether there's any willpower in Congress to do that.
well, you anticipated my next question. You've written about uh, your thoughts, or at least some of your thoughts on reform in a recent Slate article. Can you talk about some of the legislative reforms to the FVRA that you think, if Congress found the will, could uh, be helpful? Yeah, I mean, so I think one important place to start um, would be, you know, we talked about the three buckets of people who are eligible to be acting officers. I would actually make them in order, right? That is to say, I would require the president to pick from those pools um, in order, and I'd flip it a bit so that the president has to use the first assistant if there's a first assistant. Uh, and if there's no first assistant, the next person is a senior person at that agency. And if there's no one, you know, qualified under that rubric, then you can pick a Senate-confirmed officer from some other agency. Um, so I would start there, where, where it's not a choice, it's actually just an order of battle. Um, I think we should also put teeth into these time limits. Um, you know, 210 days is a very long time, especially if it's renewable with nominations. Yep. So I suggested limiting that to 60, um, or at the very least 90. Um, and that, yes, the clock can be told if the president nominates someone, but with clearer rules about what happens if the nomination is sat on, basically. And I think, you know, Michael, perhaps most importantly, I think Congress ought to be rethinking whether it wants acting officers to exercise the exact same authorities as Senate-confirmed officers. Congress has the power constitutionally, and this is, you know, clear from over 100 years of Supreme Court precedent, to distinguish between the powers of Senate-confirmed officers and the powers of acting officers. And I think it would take a whole lot of um, air out of the, you know, acting officer balloon if president actually found that they could do less with an acting uh, HUD secretary, for example, than a Senate confirmed secretary, if the acting administrator of the EPA, for example, was not allowed to repeal a rule promulgated by a Senate confirmed EPA administrator. And that's where I think Congress can really, I think, ramp up, not necessarily sort of constraints on the president, but sensible balances of power so that the president is not, you know, disempowered from acting when vacancies happen. Because let's face it, Vacancies happen, but so that there's no similar incentive for the president to perpetuate these vacancies as a way of aggrandizing his own authority. So President Trump recently and infamously said that Article 2 essentially allows him to do whatever he wants to do. (laughs) And obviously, Article 2 does not uh, accord him um, uh, that much power. But I am curious if any of the reforms that you are advocating for were to pass, given the current Supreme Court, do you think that either um, in light of Article 2 or in light of any other um, uh, constitutional provisions, would any of these three reforms be in jeopardy of being struck down? I don't think so, Michael, and for a couple of reasons. So, So first and most importantly, I mean, I do think that there is settled Supreme Court precedent about Congress's power to define the scope of an office. And so I think even this court would not be bothered by the notion that Congress can say the acting EPA administrator can only do these things, whereas a Senate-confirmed EPA administrator can do those things. Like that, I think, is deeply consistent with Congress's settled powers. On the sort of broader question of the timing, I and mean, I think it's worth reminding folks that, you know, in, a, in an opinion that got very little attention when it was handed down, the Supreme Court in early 2017, in a case called NLRB versus Southwest General, um, had real issues with how long uh, a particular admin- uh, official had been serving as the acting general counsel of the NLRB. And, you know, Justice Thomas, who is, I think, you know, a, a pretty staunch defender of executive prerogative in this space, 
went out of his way in a concurring opinion to suggest that he thought um, there were serious constitutional problems with having someone serving in an acting position for as long as the acting general counsel had been serving. If that's where Justice Thomas is, Michael, I actually yeah. think you know this court would probably be deeply sympathetic to reforms that try to you know restore the balance of power between the president and the Senate in this context. You know that where we would run into Article Two objections would be if Congress were doing more to tell the president who he could and could not nominate, nominate. Yep. to these positions on a permanent basis. But you know that's that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about who would hold these offices temporarily pending the nomination of whoever the president deems fit. Um, and I think in that context, even this court, I think, would probably have no problem, you know, as long as Congress didn't get carried away. Well, that question I just raised is moot until the Congress actually passes uh, legislation to enact the kinds of reforms and, you've described. And the, president, and the president signs and it. And the president signs it, exactly. And so I wonder if you agree with my read then, which is that the condition under which this package of reforms could be passed would be one where we have a lame duck president about to cede power to an incoming president of the other party and a Congress uh, with both houses of the same party. That is, the Republicans, for example, see that they're about to lose power to a Democratic president or vice versa. That seems to me to be, I would go so far as to say, the only scenario where the kind of limitation on uh, presidential prerogatives you're describing would pass. Do you think I'm too pessimistic? Um, marginally. Um, I mean, I think, I, I think it's probably right that it would take either a lame duck president or a bill that had an effective date not until the end of the current presidency. Um, right. So that is to say, it would be, it would be, I think, you know, easier for a president to say, I'm happy to sign legislation that won't apply to me, whether that's because they're a lame duck or because of when the bill would go into force. I, I'm not sure about the politics. I, I don't know that you would have to have a scenario, like, there's a scenario where, curbing the president's power to abuse the vacancies regime um, is actually something Republicans might be very excited about um, in a scenario in which a Democrat wins the presidential election next year, but the Republicans hold the Senate because, you know, such a statute would mm. actually give the Republican-controlled Senate a fair amount of power that it would not otherwise have to constrain, you know, say, a Democratic president's ability to have acting officers to the same degree and scope as President Trump has. And so I'm not sure we would need to see a shift in who holds which houses of Congress. I think it could be as simple as a Democrat winning the presidential election and you know the House and the Senate staying as they are um, and Republicans seeing such a bill. You know, It'll be sold as a good government measure, but seeing it actually as a way to preserve their power um, in the Senate. You know, that's, that to me is, is a actually rather plausible political scenario, right, for, for this legislation becoming, you know, not just desirable, but actually passable. The first time that we talked, we were talking about the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh we spoke before the confirmation process uh, uh, blew up with uh, Christine Blasey Ford coming forward, but he is on the court now. Has he surprised you in any ways? Um, 
I was a little surprised, Michael, by his vote in the sort of in the Apple case, in the in the the sort of the weird antitrust case the court had this term where, you know, he joined the lefties in a 5-4 opinion that um, made a lot of sense to me, but that I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, for the most part, you know, just about one full term into his time on the court, I don't think this is that different from what I at least had expected. Um you know, that, that, the, that Justice Kavanaugh is generally a reliable member of the conservative bloc, that, you know, there aren't going to be that many contexts where he breaks from, you know, that, that group and that, those ideological commitments, especially in high profile cases, that increasingly the, the justices who are the most likely to sort of, I think, join the, the lefties in, in, in five, four cases are going to be either the chief or Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's actually a relatively unsurprising term. From Kavanaugh's perspective, which you know, depending upon who you are and where you sit, may be either redeeming or disappointing, or some combination of both. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Stephen Vladek for taking the time to talk with me. He's becoming a bit of a regular on Tatter, and that makes me happy. If you use Twitter, you should be sure to follow Steve Vladek on Twitter. Every time I read one of his tweets, I learn something, and you will too. Be sure to check out his recent tweet about the brief just submitted by him and his co-counsel in a case to be argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. That's Hernandez v. Mesa. I hope to eventually get him back to Tatter to talk about the case. Also, check out the National Security Law Podcast, which Steve co-hosts with his Texas colleague, Bobby Chesney. For now, for more information on Stephen Vladek, as well as the topics we discussed today, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. To provide feedback for this or any other episode of Tatter, you can go to Twitter and mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or you can post a review to iTunes. I appreciate feedback submitted either way. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.